Today's scripture reading comes from John 19, 16b to 30. Please stand for the reading of God's word. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. We continue in our study of the Gospel of John. Cornelius Plantinga Jr. wrote a book entitled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. That statement resonates with most of us. Our world is not like it should be. With the pain and the suffering, the selfishness and the bitterness, illness and death, our hearts all cry out for a world as it's supposed to be. We chant, give a peace a chance, but wars have ravaged nation after nation throughout the years. We sing, all we need is love, but hate prevails, prejudice, hostility, self-centeredness rule. We cry out, let justice roll down like a river. But our world is riddled with injustice despite how loudly we make that cry. We all have an inner sense of eternity, and yet we know that each of us will end our lives in death. We long for a world that's different from ours. And so we rail against this one or against the people who are supposed to fix it who can't, or we even rail against God. Because the world shouldn't be like this if God is loving and sovereign. So how do we explain the incongruence between what we feel the world should be and, and the world that we live in? Well, the Bible informs us that the world 
was once as it was meant to be, as we would hope it would be. But that all changed when humanity rebelled against God. Sin entered along with death, pain, and suffering. This morning, we're going to look at God's answer to humanity's rebellion. It's not retribution. It's not payback. Instead, we're going to see God's plan to mend our broken world through forgiveness and restoration provided by the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, I am so inadequate to preach these incredible words. And so I pray that your spirit would preach to each of us, whether it's through something I say or something I don't say, but your word has said. Meet us, bring us to the foot of the cross in this message and in communion today. Make Jesus Christ, his gospel, real to us. In his name we pray, amen. The restoration of our broken world is a major theme in the Gospel of John. He opens his book with the words, in the beginning. Have you heard those words before? They immediately draw us back to the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. But there was darkness. And the first thing that Jesus said, excuse me, that God said was, let there be light. And there was light. In John 1.4, John says, the light came into the darkness. So those first words in John draw us back to that original creation and give us a sense that perhaps there's going to be a new creation. That the world is in darkness, but the light in Jesus Christ has come into the world. So this theme is woven throughout the book of John. It's highlighted in his first miracle, it's hinted at in each one of his miracles, and it comes to a crescendo in our passage when Jesus says, it is finished. The same word spoken in Genesis 2-2 when it says, on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested. God finished his work after six days of the original creation. On the sixth day of the week of Friday, Jesus declared it's finished for the new creation. The work had been done on the cross that was necessary for God to recreate our world. So this morning we're going to look at how the cross mends our broken world. We're going to first look at the promise of restoration that the prophet spoke of that we're going to be fulfilled through the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Then we're going to look at the provision of restoration. What are some of the things that the cross, especially in our passage, show Jesus' death provided for us in our spiritual lives? And then thirdly, we're going to look at the price of restoration. The price that Jesus had to pay for us. And for our world. So we begin with the promise of restoration. <clears throat> In his book, Plantinga points out the hope and promise that was taught by the Old Testament prophets. I read, 
They dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out, rough places made plain. The foolish would be made wise, the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people could go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs could lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean toward God, and delight in God. This new age would come through the promised Messiah, the King of the Jews. One of the reasons the Jewish people rejected Jesus was because although he claimed to be Messiah, he didn't appear to fulfill this promise. He wasn't lifting a finger to confront their subjugation to Rome, and he didn't seem to bring any semblance of the new age. What they failed to understand was that the Messiah would first come as a suffering servant to win the spiritual victory that would pave the way for his kingdom and the restoration of the world. We see this predicted in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Peace and healing would come through the Messiah dying for our sins in his first coming. They also failed to see that Jesus' miracles, giving sight to the blind, healing the sick, casting out demons, bringing the dead back, were a foretaste of his restoring work. Our passage cries out that Jesus is that Messiah who would restore the world. Uh, Eric brought it out last week when the soldiers put the crown of thorns on Jesus' head and arrayed him with regal robes. They were mocking him as king. But God had another message. He is the king. But he is the king who wears the crown of the curse of thorns. He would bear our curse for us. That's the kind of king he would be. During his trial with Pilate, Jesus affirms the fact that he is king, even though he's a king of a different kingdom. And the sign placed over Jesus' cross is God's message to the world that Jesus is the king of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah. We read, Pilate also wrote an inscription, and he put it on a cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write he's the King of the Jews. Rather, that this man said he's the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Pilate, the cowardly Roman governor, 
who had given in to the pressure of the Jewish leaders at every point, even sentencing Jesus to the most hideous death, knowing he was innocent, all of a sudden has this ounce of courage. What can explain this? Some might think, well, he's trying to regain some measure of self-respect after giving in, giving in, giving in. Now he could feel courageous that he took a stand. It could be that it was a passive-aggressive response to, to try to get back at the Jews who had forced his hand. The real answer is God is sovereign. And God is declaring that this Jesus is the long-awaited king of the Jews in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the world, Jews and Gentiles, would hear God's voice God's finger pointing to Jesus as the king. So this brings us to the provision of restoration. What does Jesus provide through his death? Revelation says the world's going to be restored. Read this from Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus will one day reverse the curse brought on by sin completely and make all things new. But that's at his second coming. His first coming was to pay the price so that that can happen. So while we await Jesus' mending of the world, there is a healing that Jesus offers here and now, our personal restoration. While there's a number of spiritual benefits related to his personal restoration, I remember Lewis Berry Schaefer mentioned 32. There's more than that. We'll look we will look at the ones that we see in our passage this morning, beginning with the distribution of Jesus' clothes. You know, John regularly speaks of spiritual things in physical activity. When Jesus turned six water pots into wine, he was declaring that Jesus would bring a new creation. When he fed 5,000 with bread, he was declaring Jesus is the bread of life. When he healed the blind man, it was Jesus is the light of the world. When he brought Lazarus back from the dead, he showed he's the resurrection and the life. He called himself a good shepherd, though he had no physical sheep. He called himself a vine. He and John speak spiritual things in physical terms. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see a spiritual significance in the Romans dividing Jesus' clothing. We read in verses 23 and 24, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be, who would get 
the tunic, the clothes of Jesus. See, clothing in Scripture represents righteousness. When Adam and Eve sin for the first time, they feel shame and guilt and they try to make try to make it right, and the first thing they do is make clothes for themselves out of fig leaves. They're trying to create their own righteousness. Later in the passage, we see that God clothes them, showing that only God can clothe us with a righteousness that gives us a relationship with God. Isaiah speaks of our righteousness being as filthy rags. And when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, it says his clothes were as white as light. The, clothes, the image of these soldiers having and wearing Jesus' clothes pictures that God is the one who provides our righteousness through the death of Jesus Christ. It images a truth in 2 Corinthians 5.21 which says, For our sake he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. When we place our faith in Christ, not only are our sins forgiven, but Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. That's what the word justification that's used over and over in Scripture means. You know, it's as though I have a debt of a, a million dollars and someone comes along and pays that debt. But not only that, they then put a billion dollars into my bank account. Jesus' death on the cross paid our debts so we could have forgiveness. Our sins could be removed as far as the east is from the west. But he also imputes his righteousness. So our bank account in heaven is not empty. It's not filled with our personal righteousness, which is filthy rags. It's filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's how God sees us. Next, we see the creation of the spiritual family at the foot of the cross, Verses 25 and through 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own house. When Jesus was enduring the most hideous form of torture, fashioned to inflict the greatest amount of pain and shame, Jesus continually thought not of himself, but of everyone else that was around. Of the crowd that's crucifying, he said, Father, forgive them. Of one of the two thieves who had been mocking him when that thief finally turned to Jesus, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And now he, he looks at his mother he sees his disciple next to him, and he's going to provide for his mother's care. Jesus had brothers and sisters. They could care for Mary. But they, at this point, were not believers. So Jesus was providing for more than her physical care. He was providing for her spiritual care. One who could interpret what Jesus was doing on the cross, that it wasn't shame, but it was glory. It wasn't death, but it was life to everyone who would believe. And it speaks of a spiritual truth that at the foot of the cross, 
Jesus creates a spiritual family. The church, you and me who believe in Jesus. We are the body of Christ. We are brothers and sisters. And our relationship with each other should be as deep, if not deeper, than our relationship in our nuclear families. That's why we are to love one another, forgive one another, care for one another, bear with one another, support one another, pray for one another, build up, rejoice, champion one another. That's what we're to be about. Jesus' next two statements on the cross do two things. They give us more insights into the spiritual things that the cross brings, but they also point to the price that Christ paid for our restoration. We read, after this, Jesus knowing that all things, that all was now finished, said in order to fulfill scripture, I thirst. There was a physical reason that Jesus said he was thirsty. His throat was parched. It needed to be hydrated if the crowd was to hear his last two cries. But there's a much greater spiritual significance. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks of water as being spiritual life, spiritual vitality, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He speaks of thirst as being devoid of a relationship with God of thirsting for life itself. He said it to the woman at the well. <clears throat> the water I will give you will become up in one, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In John 7, at the end of the feast, he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Whoever drinks in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow Rivers of living water. In the book of Revelation we read, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of the life without price. We all thirst. We thirst for love, meaning, significance, hope, joy, fulfillment, life. We thirst for God. To paraphrase Pascal, there's a God-shaped vacuum in every human heart that only God can fill. And we thirst to have that vacuum filled. Jesus never thirsted because he had always experienced complete fulfillment through his relationship with God the Father. But when he bore our sins, that ended. God looked at him as though he was guilty of every sin ever committed throughout history. And Jesus felt the burden of that sin and the wrath of God's judgment. He experienced a parching thirst of his soul because his eternal relationship with the Father had been severed. This separation was not merely a forensic judgment it was a subjective feeling he experienced every aspect of spiritual thirst 
that we experience, but to an even greater degree. That's the spiritual price that Christ paid. And he was willing to pay that price so that we would never have to thirst again. So that we could have the living water welling up within us. So that we would experience what it meant to experience God's original creation. Once his parched throat was hydrated with sour wine, he made his final declaration to the crowd. Verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished is actually a single word in the Greek, tetelestai. When someone has a bill to pay, and it was paid, the word tetelestai would be written across that bill. Paid in full. When Jesus cries out tetelestai, he is saying, the debt of our sin is paid in full. There's no need for any of us to make any payments for our sins because Christ has paid it all. When we really get this, we'll begin to understand the Christian life. You see, there are those who keep trying to earn their way to God as if we have to pay our debt. We might say, if I'm religious enough, if I go through all the right spiritual hoops, if I'm good enough, if I deny myself enough, if I do enough for other people, well, then God will accept me. No, our good works can't make up for our sin. But Jesus paid our debt in full. We can't work for our salvation. It's given as a gift to be received. Then there are those who live in guilt. Even Christians live under a shadow of guilt as though more needed to be paid. I know in my own life, when I confess sin, I'm also often feeling I need to feel guiltier. I need to mourn more. I need to as though I could earn God's forgiveness. No, it's paid in full. And when we do not receive that freedom from guilt that Christ offers, we're actually saying that Christ didn't pay enough. I have to pay more. He has paid enough. He has paid it all. But of course, there is the additional meaning in these words this word to telestai that I referenced earlier in the, in the sermon. And I'll now quote N.T. Wright in his description. When God the creator made his wonderful world, at the end of the sixth day, he finished it. He completed his work. Now on the Friday, the sixth day of the week, Jesus has completed the work of redeeming the world. With his shameful, chaotic, horrible death, He's gone to the very bottom, to the darkest and deepest place of ruin. And he planted there a sign that says, rescued. It's that sign of love, the love of the creator for his ruined creation. The love of the savior for his ruined people. Yes, of course, it all has to be worked out. The victory has to be implemented, but it's done. It's completed. It's finished. 
Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Everything in Jesus' life was a stepping stone to this moment. It was part of his being the person who could make that payment for us. It was to this point where he finished his work for our salvation and the world's restoration. So what does that mean for us? If you are not yet a believer, hear Jesus' word, it is finished. The sin between you that created a barrier between you and God has been removed because Jesus paid for it. He offers salvation as a gift, but we can refuse that gift or we can receive it. I encourage you to remember, you can't earn it through religion, through good works, through good intentions. He's paid it all because he thirsted for us. You don't need to thirst anymore. You can have that thirst quenched by the one who became thirsty for you. And there's a message for believers. God looks forward to the new creation even more than we do. He will bring us a new age. Until then, he's called us to serve precisely where the world is broken. I don't know if you're like me, but I so often hear something new and say, oh no, this is so horrible. Oh no, we're really going down. I don't know if where, where the world is headed. I need to look to that hope that no matter how bad this world gets, I'm destined for one that is created with this perfection. I may need to endure this world temporally, but I have an eternity with him. But during that time, God would like us to work and minister to precisely where the world was broken because that's what Jesus did. There was a blind man, brokenness, he gave sight. There was a crippled man, brokenness, he made him walk. A man who died that he called forth from the grave. An outcast woman that he brought into relationship. A publican who cried out for mercy because he said, I am a sinner destitute from God. And Christ forgave him through his death. He ministered to where the world was broken. Where's the world broken around you and me? That's where we as the body of Christ, need to serve precisely where Jesus did. And when we do, one day we'll join Jesus' words from his prayer in John 17. Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Let's pray. Father, I've preached this sermon now. The question is, will I 
receive the fullness of what you've done. The question now is, will I unite with you in your care for this broken world, your weeping for this broken world, your service to this broken world? May my words today not be empty words, but may I respond to your call in Jesus' name. Amen.